Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hey guys, it's good to be back. Here we are hey, in the Dave. middle of September. Hey, hi, hey. hi, RJ. Hi, hi. Sarah. <laughs> what? It's the fall. It's the fall. It's the well, fall, y'all. There's no question fall, about it. That's We're right. in Get the your pillows swing at Kirkland. of things. Get your pillows where? At, at Kirk- Kirkland. <laughs> that's say it's fall, y'all. Fall, y'all. <laughs> it's decorative gorge season, y'all. It is. Pumpkin um, spice season. How is it? How does a fall manifest itself there in the Condon household? But I, I, are you being lobbied for some uh, Halloween decorations? What? What do you? Well, I recently inherited, due to some unfortunate circumstances, a lot oh. of Halloween decor, oh my and gosh. so we have. <laughs> I mean, if y'all think I went all out, you've not met from whence it came. So. Yes, I have pulled out all kinds of stuff, and the kids love it. It's super sweet. Um, you know, of course, bittersweet, but still really sweet. So, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's 80 degrees here, which is basically like get out your riding boots, your leggings, your cardigans, you know? The Han Solo look. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's all those memes oh of all the gosh. women in their in I've their never seen that. That is so true. Sorority girls all looking exactly like Han Solo. I love that. Um, Very funny. Well, RJ, what about? I mean, you're not in the land of autumn at all. There is no fall in South Florida. That's right. It dropped dropped below 90 degrees, which was amazing. It's raining all the time. We're on hurricane watch Mm. constantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, the the most interesting interesting thing that happened we had a five year old birthday party for Marshall last weekend, which was super fun and really the first time. We'd had a bunch of his, you know, little friends from school over mm-hmm. and actually got to meet their parents and stuff. And it was a very successful party because everyone left crying. Yeah, so. 100%. That's how you know it went well. Yes. Exactly. I mean, they yeah. all wanted to stay. One kid's face planted into the asphalt, so there's a little bit of blood. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when you get 10 five-year-old boys together, that's just what's going to happen. Dave, yeah. Dave knows about that. Oh, my goodness. Do I ever? What, what was there a theme, RJ? Or was it just? Dinosaurs. It was just oh, dinosaurs okay. for it. days, which means there was also a lot of fighting over dinosaurs yeah and uh yeah i don't know what you're talking about a lot of tears (laughs) yeah it was fun it was fun oh happy fifth birthday to uh to uh our boy um he's very grown up i will say he woke up the day of his birthday and i said marsha how old are you he goes i'm four and a half no wait i'm five and he thought about it he got a, a far off look in his eyes and he said dad you know i'm i'm still scared of shots I thought, has it gone away? He thought everything would change. That's right. Then Jamie said, honey, I am too. I'm still short of shots too. But we get them. We do get them. Yes, we do. We wouldn't want us, you know, we wouldn't want anyone to think we're those people. We get the shots. Well, hopefully by Halloween, right? All the As five, even, and un, five and over. Childhood five and over. We're going to do a trunk or treat and vaccination party. That's right. Oh my yeah. gosh. There really will be needles in your candy this year. <laughs> Good one. RJ's <laughs> on, on it today. Here in Charlottesville, it is starting to feel a little like fall. We we get four seasons here, which is very nice. And I was just, we had, um, 
it's kind of been a a, a bit of a um a revolving door here since we last spoke because uh, Melina and Melina Smith and Naya Kisa were here. Star were here for to do some story makers work, which is Mockingbird's um, sort of. Uh, it's under our umbrella. They do incredible work with children's ministry. If you're if you're looking for amazing something stuff. like that, yeah. Whether or not you have a church, it's amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. We're, we're just shameless plug for them. They're wonderful. So they were here, and then the next week we had uh, Luke Rowland, who's our new head of development and events. Uh, he kind of he came into town along with Todd Brewer, our editor in chief, and we got Callie Yee, who's our intern, and we had we had this sort of mockingbird staff party, which is the first time that. That's happened in a long time, so I'm uh, I'm feeling pretty good about where things are headed in the organization. We but we missed you guys. That's awesome. I, it's I, so weird to me that I've like literally never. I think seen I missed the invite, Dave. Uh, I've never been invited. <laughs> so yeah, well, who knows? Careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great time, and um, lots of uh, lots of love for uh, same old song. Just kidding. No, for us too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so today, lots to talk about, as always. And the first thing, I thought I'd ask you a question. Um, well, it's, it, the, the article is a question, which is, is self-awareness a mirage? Ooh. Is self-awareness a mirage? This was a column by David Brooks in the New York Times. We haven't talked about him for a little while. Um, this is something uh, kind of very, very uh, ripe territory. This is what he says. He says, one of the most unsettling findings of modern psychology is that we often don't know why we do what we do. You can ask somebody, why'd you choose that house? Or why'd you marry that person? Or why'd you go to graduate school? People will concoct some plausible story, but often they really have no idea why they chose what they did. We have a conscious self, of course, the voice in our head, but this conscious self has little access to the parts of the brain that are the actual sources of judgment, problem solving, and emotion. We know what we're feeling, just not how or why we got there. But we also don't want to admit how little we know about ourselves, so we make up some story or confabulation. I confess... Uh, Brooks writes, I don't like this finding. It hurts my sense of dignity. I like to think that I am in some way living my own life for reasons I understand. I'm not merely some puppet on neural strings. I feel bad for all those people, uh, from Rene Descartes to modern commencement speakers who said the key to life is to, quote, know thyself or, quote, look within or, quote, do the inner work. This advice seems like narcissistic nonsense in light of recent research. Uh, he goes on, but then he says, I contacted Dan McAdams, a scholar who specializes in how people tell their life stories. McAdams doubts that we can ever really know why we do anything, so we are compelled to fall back on narratives, or what he calls personal myths. He says, these narratives are inevitably problematic. Our pasts are not a stable body of evidence from which we can derive explanations for our actions. We are constantly reconstructing our past based on current goals. Moreover, our explanations for our behavior may simply be wrong or self-serving. A guy may think he fails at relationships because he never got over the girl who dumped him in college, but it could be that he just has a high degree of neuroticism he's never dealt with. He finishes by quoting Nicholas Epley, who wrote a book called Mindwise. Spending two decades studying uh, mind reading really highlighted the importance of humility in life, he said. Both recognizing that we don't have privileged access to our minds, so tone down your self-confidence, and we also don't know other people as well as we think we do. That's a little shot of low anthropology for you, too. 
self-awareness we've talked about that on this quite a bit it is um it's it's nice it can it can be nice to know uh what you're feeling and how you're feeling but uh it it is sort of uh viewed i think as a uh, a silver bullet or a modern uh answer to life's questions that if, if I just was more aware of what I would do, then I would change or I'd do something different. And, uh, the, certainly the biblical, uh, witness, um, differs from that understanding as, as well as our actual, the experience of our lives. But do you find this to be the case? I mean, um, I mean, first of all, I think we just have too much time on our hands. Mm. That's the first thing that occurs to me that like, Especially for Speak those of for us yourself. who are <laughs> like, no, too much time think, on their hands. I think what? we have too much time on our hands. I do, um, and I think I think it's too much time. I mean, even even like uh, I mean, you volunteered RJ, but um, even like clergy now, it's just so everyone is so isolated. Everything is on email. It, I, I don't know. I just, we're not like actually interacting with each other in meaningful ways in the ways that we used to. And we also feel like we're responsible for the global universe. And we also have to make everyone know that we're responsible for the global universe. And I just feel like no one is honestly making choices that they maybe want to even make. I don't know. I just feel like all of our choices sort of as we've come into more and more modern times are are it's it they're just so influenced mm. right by what we're thinking other people are thinking and and how it's going to be viewed i mean mm. and maybe that's just the enneagram 3 and me speaking and other people can manage to to not struggle with that you know i just wonder like i mean what what sort of traps have we built for ourselves? I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but all I could think about, because it's such a brilliant, brilliant observation, is Anne, Anne Lamont basically saying we all live in casinos now, you know, in terms of our heads. Like, so that's, yeah, it's just, I think self-awareness, I, I mean, I don't want to say it is a mirage. I think it can be helpful, but I don't. You know, and RJ used to say things sort of like this to me when we worked in the same office. Like the moment we feel like we've reached some sort of like zen, you know, like of self-awareness and we have it all under control um, is sort of the moment when everything is falling apart. I'm sorry to keep talking, but Dave, do you remember the meme I sent you? And I can't remember the comedians. It wasn't a meme. It was like a little video. She's a comedian and she plays the piano. And she's like, if you know a woman and she's, you know got her whole life together. It's like this, you know, she drinks water every day. She eats vegetables, you know, and she goes on for like 45 seconds of all these like wonderful virtues. And then at the end, she's like, her life is falling apart. So <laughs> I do remember that. I that mean, was great. it's such a great illustration of this. What do you think, Arge? I think there's a few different questions in there, right? Like one is, um, can someone know how they're feeling at any particular moment? Like, mm -hmm. and, and the answer to that is, is, Maybe. And so, some people are better at knowing how they feel than others, right? Some people know how they feel. Some people say, hey, I need to take some time away. Oftentimes, you know, uh, I don't know about your marriages, but in some marriages, like, I need to talk about this right now because I know exactly how I feel. And your spouse will be like, can I have a little bit of time just yeah. to reflect, you know, yeah. because I'm not exactly sure how I feel. But but can we get to a place where we do come in better contact with our emotions? And is that a good thing? And to both those, I would, I would say something a little bit like yes. Now, can we take that knowledge and actually affect our emotions? Can we choose to be 
happier? Can we choose? That I would say is, is a little more slippery, mm-hmm. right? Like there's so many times when I, I, I just hardly ever understand why I feel the way I feel, like why some days I feel great and some days I don't. You know, and what I try to do is those days I feel great, I give thanks for it. And I just say, thank you, Lord, this is awesome. And the days that I don't, I say, okay, you're you're still up there and I don't really know what to do about this, but I'll do my best to muddle through and maybe tomorrow will be different or maybe an hour from now will be different. Mm. So those, so can we know ourselves? Maybe, can we use to control things? Probably not. Um, but then the other question to me is more, when it comes to thinking about your past specifically, I think there's two questions. One can we get the question is are we willing to tell the truth about what actually happened right the reason we we spin narratives is because it's just more comfortable to do so or more expedient or less messy or um you know an example of my life is i i um I went to this boarding school uh, freshman year of high school. I'd already been in boarding school, believe it or not, for four years prior to that. Um, and I was treated really badly. Like, I got hazed badly. Um, my, the, the adults in my life who were supposed to do something about it didn't. My room got trashed. I wasn't the only one. Um, it was awful. And so I only lasted, like, I think a semester. I, I, I stuck it out for a little while, and I got out of there. And that's the story I've told. I left because I was treated badly. But if you'd asked me at the time... I would have said, I just don't really. Uh, it was up. It was up in the Northeast somewhere, and I'd just been in New York City, and I found where I was kind of boring, and my grades weren't very good. Classes were harder. Um, I was sort of having a tough time making friends. I didn't know how to interact with girls because I'd been in an all boys school for four years. That's what I would have said. I wouldn't have said it was because of the abuse I'd suffered. But mm-hmm. I, but that's the narrative I've, I've spun over the sure. last like thirty years yeah. because it's more convenient. And maybe it was actually sort of true. And who knows? That's what my parents thought. So I'm just, and but what I'll also say is that the true story is always more interesting and more instructive and more helpful than the fabricated story. Yes. Always. A hundred percent. And more painful. So like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's why like, I, I will never tell a preacher, ta- I don't tell preachers tales because they're not, you know what I mean? Those sort of made up, homespun, feel good yeah. stories that preachers tell. I never tell those because they're not true. They're not true in any sense of the word. No. They're not true. Like they didn't actually happen and they're not true to life. Like that's no. why it's the goal of the preacher. You know, when I sort of have the courage and energy and time to do it, to really try to figure out within their own heart or their own life, what is the, what is the real, what actually happened? How did I actually feel? What actually went down? Because the closer you can get to that, the closer you get to sort of the, the, the meta narrative, right? The universal narrative, the, something that, the, the pain that everyone is feeling, mm-hmm. um, even though it's scarier to tell because you, mm-hmm. you, you feel like I'm the only one. And then you tell that story and, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so like, there's a lot. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say, it is helpful to remember that um, not everything is about you, Ooh. right? Like Paul, like Paul, like Such Paul Walker, Paul Walker, you know, like Paul Walker once said, I asked him just, you know, how he was no, doing. Not, not said, the Fast and the Furious star, by the way. We're talking about. No, actually the Fast and the Furious <laughs> yeah, star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're talking about it's Paul Walker. It's been a long day since. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, Paul, Paul Walker, Reverend Paul Walker. And I said, how are you? He said, he said, I'm okay. You know, he's like, I'm trying really hard to make everything personal. You know? <laughs> oh, and, my and, gosh. And it's like, don't we do that, right? That, like, if anything is going wrong in our world at all, it's yeah. like, how is this my fault? You know, if someone isn't as nice to us from one day to the next, it's like, what did I do wrong? As opposed to like, maybe they're just having a bad day. 
yeah. maybe they're they're a mystery to themselves. You know, to to you know to remember that other people, for the most part, are mysteries to themselves, mm. and to have a little more compassion on them. Well, this is a, this is a, a lot of this is the subject of this book I've been working on, that we are a mystery to ourselves, and that self awareness is only so useful. And um, yeah, and the stories we tell about ourselves are always incomplete, and they're convenient. Last week we were last last episode we were talking about stories of deconversion and how the they they often seem to be so neat, just like stories of conversion. It's just it's a human tendency to uh, omit the details that um, that you know don't that either we've we've consciously forgotten or unconsciously forgotten, or I guess you can't consciously forget something, but you. We, we omit the stuff that doesn't fit what we want to, the story we want to tell. And I, I do think that... the Or one, the story we think, we think we're supposed to tell. So, yeah, and uh, Mary Carr, I've, I think maybe quoted it before, but she, in her Art of Memoir book, that brilliant book, she says that um, each of us has some, some sort of inner editor and uh, uh, we work really hard to omit, uh, in, in every memoir she's ever read, the, the parts of character and story that the writer is working hardest to bury are always the ones that she's trying to draw out of them because those end up being the most important facets of the story. And they're usually the most universal too. And that's what's so counterintuitive. The and, personal and, and, and specific is this. universal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I also, when I hear you, RJ, I also realize that um, you've always been kind of hazable, you know, like you're, you're a hazable yeah. guy. Hunter, I have like, a very punchable yeah, yeah, yeah. face. There's something yes. about you I that do. just makes people want to rag on you. So I, I, I feel less alone. My I brothers would agree. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, you know, and Sarah, uh, you and I—we've all three of us have talked about therapy, and and you—you sure. you want to think about if the, if the purpose of therapy is simply self-awareness, then it's not going to be very effective. But a, a good therapist is—it's—it's it's, a—it's the allowance to say the things that you don't feel you can say other places in the presence of someone who's sort of on your side. So it's actually the experience of grace, I think, um, mm-hmm. as well as you know, a little you can hear yourself talk for the first time ever. I think. Um, it, because what was interesting, he interviews a therapist that I didn't read, but she said, I don't never ask people why they do what they do. You, uh, if, if they're talking about their behavior, I try to ask them when, uh, what, and where questions to give them a little distance to think about themselves in the third person to sort of observe their behavior in, in, the, in the service of giving themselves a little bit of um, space. Yeah, I don't know if I should say this, but I I will. <laughs> it's never stopped you before. I mean, I'm just it's a very personal thing. Um so my brother uh and his fiance were supposed to get married 2 days uh to the year of my parents' deaths. And I realized at some point that I was really rooting for the pandemic because it would mean that they couldn't have their wedding, um, which is so dark on multiple levels, right? Um, because the idea of it being that close to the anniversary is really hard for me, you know? And and they are, like, the loveliest and, like, asked if it was going to be hard. And I said, no, of course, it'll be fine. And then, like, as we get closer, you know? And at some point, I had to... And I love what Paul Walker said about, like, figuring out how to take things personally because... First of all, um, people always take things way too personally around weddings, especially the two, especially people who aren't the ones getting married. And so I think that's like a really important observation to make about like just general population 
and myself. Um, but also like, what if, what if there's joy to be had, Hmm. you know, in this moment for our family? And what if there's beauty and is there a way for me to set aside some weird personal, I mean, not weird, I'm not judging myself, but, but sort of a personal agenda to want to avoid pain. Mm. Um, versus just saying this may be hard, but it's also going to be a beautiful thing for our family. Mm. And, and how do we, how do we embrace it? And how do I show up for it present and tender and loving and open hearted, you know? Um, but that was like a very, like that was a shift in me that had to happen Mm. um, where I was like, okay, I have my own agenda about this and it's weird, you know? Um, so yeah, that's what I was thinking about. It's funny. You, you, you say that story, Sarah, and I know it was a risk to say it, but like, I, I've never been in that situation, but I can completely, uh, I feel known I, I, because I've yeah. rooted for, for things to not happen that are good things in order yeah. to avoid something that I don't want to feel. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, one of the great um, gifts of low anthropology, you know, people think it's sort of shaming or uh, self esteem killing but what what we're have what what's actually being said here is that you can never actually know yourself that well and you can mm. never really know another person that well so what does that open the door for i mean in my book oh i say it opens the door for curiosity mm-hmm. there's there's always something more you Ted can lasso always something more you can learn yeah but and also fellowship like you we're 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 alike in our confusion mm-hmm. um and and it and it i think that there's there's a there's a bond where there wasn't one before where your self-awareness and my self-awareness seemed incompatible almost in fact if we're um you know, my self-confidence might be misplaced and, but also my judgments of you might be misplaced. So that, that's actually a, I think I see that as a, because uh, there's negative judgments we make about ourselves. A lot of very negative judgments that we make about ourselves. I heard a child this morning make a very negative judgment about himself. And I thought to myself, thought, you know, uh, I, that's painful to hear, but you also don't really know what you're talking about because you, you don't know yourself as well as, as uh, your mother and I do. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and and that's hopeful. That's hopeful, yeah. especially when I have some tapes that run in my head that are sort of a not enoughness type of thing. The, the self confidence. There's always a little bit of possibility that you could be actually a, a big possibility, but you could say it as a little possibility that you're completely wrong about these things. You know, yeah. you just can't see it because self awareness is, is. What if I'm wrong about everything? What if I'm wrong about everything? What if yeah. I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong about RJ? I mean, well, <laughs> I, I would say that I think the goal of self-awareness is empathy. Mm. I mean, I think that's the goal. Like, if it's not, if you're not also thinking like, wow, I have this whole weird inner tape running that's got my own agenda. Wow, everyone else probably has that too. People I'm mad at and disagree with are probably struggling with the same things. Like, then it it just becomes like about, otherwise it just becomes about you as the ultimate goal and when it's about you as the ultimate goal it's a failed project because because it won't you know i don't know like self-awareness will only take you so far right like um absolutely rj what were you about well and well as you guys were talking about you know sarah you were talking about therapy and dave you were talking about parenting um you know, and both of those, the therapist relationship and the parent relationship being one in which um, you're sort of free to, to, to put it out there, you know, in kind of a, a safe and, and loving place, um, you know, that that just uh, relates totally to, 
to God, you know, and to, Christ, to Christianity, that what we, what we believe, where we find hope is that though, although we may not be aware of ourselves, God is aware of absolutely everything. Mm. You know, he knows what the truth is. Um, as despairing as we may be of ourselves, he knows ourselves even better than we could possibly imagine. And he has said, I, I love you mm. and I'm, and I'm with you and I'm on your, I'm on your side. And so to come to an awareness, not of yourself, but of the love that God has for you, um, even as sort of broken and confused and conflicted and as you are, um, you know, that's, that's, the ultimate source of, of our hope. That's actually, I think, a, a perfect lead into this next item, which is an interview with author Anne Lamott, we, you know, who's always a font of funny, witty, extremely wise things. And here she was interviewed in Time magazine by Susanna Schrobsdorf. And it starts out with Susanna asking, how do we keep from falling into a pit of despair? This is what Anne says. She says, I wanted to start my book, her new book, It's All Hopeless, because a couple things can be true at once. It really feels completely hopeless. And at the same time, I always turn to the serenity prayer, which says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, which is 99.9% of things and the courage to change the things I can. I tell my writing students, you start where you are. You start where your feet are. And that means what can I do today? which is a very hopeful question. She goes on, but uh, Susanna uh, Schraubstorf asks, there's a lot of anger in the U.S. right now. Does it get to you? Lamont says, there's a chapter in the book based on what Martin Luther King said, which was, don't let them get you to hate them. Once you let them get you to hate them, you're doomed. You've lost your center. You've lost all that is wonderful and true and sweet and dear and probably messy about your life. Mm. She says, probably my biggest character defect is judgment. This is good. This is bad. They're the problem. They're the reason. Shrubstorf says, my fantasy is to escape to another place or country where I'll definitely be nicer. <laughs> Lamott says, well, if it's out there, it's not going to work. If it's another country, if it's a perfect spouse, if it's a perfect diet, if it's out there, it's only going to work for part of one day. It's not out there. No, it's an inside job. Horribly, horribly, it's an inside job. <laughs> And then she closes with something that reminds me of what just what you said, RJ, about God. She said, can you talk a bit why, about why your friendships are so important? Lamont says, the reason I have so much religious faith is because of the quality of my friendships. You have three or four people that you let into your, the very center, your heart cave, who know the very center of you and did not run screaming for their cute little lives. And because of the quality of my best friendships, I have faith that life tilts toward the good. And no matter what happens, I'll come through. So good. I just, I wish I could, uh, had access to this. I've always said that my favorite spiritual writers, uh, religious writers in America are all sort of, uh, w- women in sort of late middle age, uh, who, I was like who, middle-aged are, women. who are in recovery, who are also like, who, yeah. who constantly talk about oh, alcohol. Yeah. Cause that's Mary Carr. That's Nadia. Yeah. That's it's, yeah. That's Anne. Um, they yeah. have access to some deep, deep wisdom here, and this is no uh, exception. Which they've paid a price for. They've oh paid a gosh. huge <laughs> price for. A huge price. Huge price. Yeah. So, Sarah, you were you you. Um, I don't know if you sent this to it. Actually, someone else. Todd sent this to me. But what did you? What what uh, struck you? I mean, you know order the bridesmaid's dress. I mean that, you know what I mean? Like I just read it and I'm like, get ready for the wedding. I'm like, I don't know. I just think there's something about her that always points towards joy while also acknowledging 
the despair you may be currently in that I find incredibly hopeful. I mean, it's funny. I had lunch with my students yesterday. We do lunch on campus every Wednesday. And I had just seen the photograph of the um, border patrol guy on the horse whipping a Haitian man, and um, which is just horrific, historically, racially, current, Christian. I mean, like at every level, it's just it's just absolutely god awful. Um, and I was like wondering if our order from Panera was gonna come. <laughs> <And> I- <laughs> I get on campus and I'm, you know, I like pass out sandwiches and I'm like, gosh, this is such a strange feeling. And when I prayed with them, I just, you know, before we ate, I just thought, and I said like, Lord, you know, the world is so chaotic and there's so much um, unexpected trauma and, and grief, you know, and yet you have given us this moment of joy and, um, and I think we, I think, I hope Anne Lamont would agree with me. And I, th- I think that we are mistaken when we think that moments of joy are somehow an escape. I have actually found in these past nine months that they are, they are the thing that gives me ground underneath me when the despair hits. Hmm. Hmm. So they sustain me um, when the despair comes. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I find Anne Lamont incredibly um, helpful. And my mom loved her. I have like so many copies of Anne Lamont books upstairs in my house right now because my mom would buy a book, couldn't find it and buy it again. <laughs> her and Susie Ormond. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Susie Ormond too. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> What do you think, RJ? Not about Susie yeah, Orman. <laughs> just ask Susie. Um, I find her to be incredibly honest, mm. uh, disarmingly so, um, sort of challengingly so, and yet, as Sarah said, um, hopeful. And I was struck what she said about just sort of self-care, which I am not good at. I'm not good at taking care of myself. Um and I kind of wish I were better, but I'm not even sure what that would look like. I feel guilty even thinking about it, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Mm. And um, yeah, I do. I, I do. need I'm to send you some it. CBD bath salts or something. Buddy. Some oh, some bath. <laughs> I don't like baths. Um, yeah, and 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 also hopeful that um, you know, I think your dad has talked about this too about sort of the third third of life. Mm-hmm. You know, that the time in life when you're not consumed with kind of um kingdom small k your own <laughs> kingdom building you know which you'll you'll justify and say is someone else's kingdom but it's actually just yours doesn't she say she says uh, she talks about that in there right the, the third she does third, third you know that, that the, still gets depressed you, but it's just a much shorter window doesn't la- and self-loathing but it doesn't doesn't last as long you know and and you you kind of relax into who you are a little bit and and you recognize that you but you know by the grace of god you are who you are and you're not what you're not and um that sounds very Sounds very appealing. Um, I I have to say, I was struck by the thing she said about being 50 and sort of all the people that you thought couldn't die have died and how I've gotten that a lot earlier. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't know that I would say like, yay me, but like it's, uh, it was, 
it's always helpful to have people that write in this way because you're like, oh, okay, you've made it. You know, <laughs> like you're still you're still breathing. You're still breathing. You know, yeah. you're having coherent thoughts. Um, you know, I I, so. I we didn't say the the book that. So she's got a new book out called uh, Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. That's what she's being interviewed about. And that the Straubsdorf quotes this incredible paragraph that I thought was worth reading that really, I think, hammers home the, the, the predicament that we find ourselves in. She says, where can we hear any whispers in the cacophony behind the drama and trauma and fever dreams of our era? With our phones to our ears, life and our minds mm. frequently feel like casinos now. Mm. There is no sun, no pocket of quiet. There don't seem to be exits, and the reception is terrible. Connection to anything real, to the ancient, to the mystical, to the moment is weak. So there's bound to be existential exhaustion. You know, I was um, talking to, I think it was Keith Votes was saying something uh, on Facebook about how his uh, therapist doesn't think we're going through a mental health crisis, but much more of an existential crisis as a society, that that's where the true... Um, the, the meat of what, what is happening, what's plaguing people is not, in fact, pure anxiety. It's, it's a meaninglessness. Um, yeah. And I, 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 Keith would have to tell you what, what was actually meant by that. But I think that that's what Anne is talking about. And there was a, a, a Tish Warren wrote a piece in the New York Times this past week about uh, a lack of silence. And um, as churches are a place, are a pocket of silence. And we seem to get yeah. that less and less. And of course, in during quarantine, there was we were all at home, but at least in my life, there was no silence. It was just no. nonstop. I also think though, about what she <laughs> says about the, her, the reason she has for hope about her friendships is what she's describing as grace. Like that is yeah. what she's instantiated in friendships. People who see yeah. the center of you and don't run screaming Embodied for the hills. Grace. That's yeah. Walker Percy, but that's Jesus Christ. I mean, that is, that's the engine for hope that yeah. the, despite the darkness of ourselves and the darkness of the world, there, it, there is something. There's, there's the the love we call divine is actually that which, which, which comes toward. Like, what do you say, Sarah? You always say Easter is is coming toward us. Oh yeah, you know? my friend Callie. Yeah, Callie Pitcock said that Easter is always coming towards us. You know, I, I get there's something about um, about Nadia and Anne and Mary Carr that you get that they're just grateful. Right. Like, I think that is in, on some level, like where the hope comes in. They're just grateful for Jesus. Mm. Yeah. She also teaches Sunday school. I mean, she's a, such an unabashed that. Christian. I know. I know. Um, RJ, anything else you, you were thinking about? Any darker, nope. any darker you can go for us right now. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is hopeless. <laughs> no, I, what you said about, um, I, what she said about our, our, our minds being casinos and no time. And, yeah. you know, Friday's my day off. And last Friday I went out and sometimes on Friday mornings, I, um, I often play tennis. It's really fun. But I came home and usually like Jamie's home and she's taking a jog and we go to lunch or whatever. But I came home and she wasn't there and no one was there. And at first I was like, oh, she ditched me. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is so nice, you know? And I had, like, two hours in my house of quiet, you know, yeah. and nobody there. And she said to me later, she's like, yeah, I had some errands and I felt a little bit bad. And then I figured you might really enjoy it. I was like, I really did enjoy it. You know, that's when you say... Um, 
Sarah, like we have too much time on our hands. Like, I don't know what that means. Maybe we do and we just fill it with noise. Maybe we don't realize how much time we have. We just fill it up with, with busyness and noise and kingdom building and anxiety or whatever. Mm. I just, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't feel that way. I, I, w- I would like a little bit. Yeah, I'd like a little bit less to do. I think you need what this next item is. I think you need the nap ministry. The nap ministry. This has come across, and my friend Norma sent this to me, and it's about founded by a lady named Trisha Hersey, who basically just takes naps in public spaces. And uh, she does so. She says it's an organ. <laughs> Sounds like my mom. <laughs> she does it intentionally, uh, which is an organization that examines the liberating power of rest. It's uh, you know influenced by black liberation theology. Uh, we name sleep deprivation as a racial and social justice issue. Mm. And this project came out of her own experiences with exhaustion. And she was interviewed or she, a couple years ago or last year uh, in um, the Atlantic where she was talked to because um, people can't sleep. And there's another article in Vox this past week about how insomnia is still rising. People are not sleeping. And she says, uh, the way that she frames it, she says, I always say, take it easy on yourself. This is a slow deprogramming. I think a lot of people are having issues with sleep. I'm not sleeping as well as I used to either because I'm really worried as well about my family. Then James Hamlin, who's interviewing her for The Atlantic, says, I don't feel constantly exhausted in the way that I would with real insomnia. I just hit these walls where I become so exhausted that I can barely function, and then I know I can sleep. But otherwise, if I have capacity in me, I am up. Hersey says, you said something important when you said that you feel like you could be doing something. You feel like while I'm up and while I'm alive, every moment of the day needs to be filled with me doing something to help what's happening. But when you start to deprogram all the systems that have us at this point of sleep deprivation, uh, what you get to is where we, uh, the bottom line is we don't think we are worthy of sleep. We see it as a total luxury. When you are resting, you are being productive, she says. I'm trying to reframe rest and deprogram people around the concept that if you aren't, quote, doing something in the classic sense, then you're not worthy. But the, the, what caught my attention also was what she had a slogan is like, how, how are you going to be useless today? <laughs> how are you going to be useless to capitalism? How are you going to be useless to society? That, that is, um, she's, she, the slogans you find in the NAP ministry all about how we're not machines. Yeah. And uh, there's... Um, and she was talk. She was talking about. She's a she's a black woman, and she was talking about how uh, during last summer um, that after George Floyd, she she was so upset that she she got really exhausted, and the feeling that if she wasn't doing something or caring about something every second of the day, then she was somehow dishonoring her heritage, herself, her mm-hmm. culture, and that 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 produced this deep deep exhaustion. And what she realized was sort of that the act of rest, the act of stopping, the act of being useless was in fact a, a, a different way of kind of being powerful. Now, I would, I would call that sort of the place of receptivity, you know, of, yeah. of, of grace. But this idea of you can just go take a nap in a public spot. She, she says that sleep is sort of seen as a little bit, uh, um, we're ashamed of it. Like we, we joke about old folks falling asleep uh, or being narcoleptic and stuff like that. And, and sleep is something you do privately and you never do it um, in front of other people. And um, she's trying to like destigmatize that in a way that I found just creative and interesting. What do you think? I mean, I will say our, you know, our house, the rectory is in a very nice neighborhood. <laughs> And there's a lot of porches, and um, I almost never see people sitting on them, ever. Mm. And we discovered, I mean, when I say that, we've lived here for eight-ish years. I've seen people sitting on their front porch 
maybe five times. Like it was all, I almost never see it. And we discovered during COVID that we had this front porch upstairs that we could sit at and it was like a whole new room. And so I, you know, cleaned it off and, and we started sitting up there. And then I started to realize that the temperature would drop kind of in the late afternoon and I could fall asleep up there just on full display for the neighborhood. And then I started just waltz out there in my yoga pants and my sports bra with my rolls and sit in a chair and fall asleep. And like, God bless my husband who never said a word to me, but it did, I, it did occur to me that people would just drive by and there's this like lady upstairs without a shirt on asleep on her front porch. And I just thought, you know, this is a good witness to the gospel. I- I think I it mean, is though, because you drive by and you're I like, mean, something's wrong. Someone's asleep right, outside. It's like right, something is terribly right. wrong. Someone's resting. To, to the you wake phone. up, smoke a cigarette, <laughs> go back to sleep. I mean, it's a good life, okay? Ugh. So yeah, no, I love the nap ministry. I think it's incredible, and I think it's super important mm. um, for us to be able to take that time. I, but I say that carefully just because I think of RJ and I think he's in a season of like busyness and work and demands. And I think I would say that I'm not children. Sure yeah. I'm not sure it's always possible to yeah. take a nap in your sports bra on the front porch. Hmm. RJ, <laughs> where do you take naps in your sports bra? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's not that I don't feel worthy of sleep. It's that actually, you know, I do, I think, what a lot of people do, which is stay up too late because the kids kind of finally get down and you're like, oh my God, now I could actually have an hour or two to do maybe what I want to do. Um, I will say, I do notice when I feel better about like life in general, I have less of a problem going to sleep at like nine o'clock, you know, which is probably the time I should be going to sleep is more like nine and not like 11 because I got to get up early and get kids to school and everything. But um, but when I'm not feeling good about things, then it's like you're 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 chase you're chasing something, yeah. right? You're chasing some moment of, of 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 joy, or you know maybe I'll see that television program that allows me to abreact to a degree which 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 helps me tomorrow or something <laughs> like that. Like I can't go to bed feeling the way I'm feeling right yeah. now, so I'm gonna stay awake until I get just a little bit of uh, dopamine or whatever it is I can fall asleep. Mm. So I'm sure I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that, but. No, anyway. you're not alone in that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do wonder what it means that you can only sell sleep again as, as though it's productive. That's just, uh, and I know that what she's she what she is talking. She's framing that there are other kinds of productivity other than economic productivity. There is psycho spiritual productivity, doing things for yourself, and and you know, uh, even Lamont talks about you know practicing radical self care and eating a lot of fat, and and I I kind of like that. Of course, we've talked about many times self care has oh oh this is what's interesting trisha later says that you'll notice that most self-care is 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 trying to get you to buy something and nap ministry is completely free and so it's it's seen as not legitimate in that re, in that way too because you can't um it's only <laughs> it's only works if it's not if it doesn't cost a ton of money like from you know goop or something like that. So I, I like the idea of that self-care does not necessarily involve spending a ton of money. Right. It can be free. 
Last but not least, speaking of storytelling and the past, uh, my dear friend Charlotte Getz, she she asked me about a year ago to write about the Jesus I wish I knew in high school for a book that she was putting together. And I wrote something about it, which I felt was worth talking about because it was, um, yeah, it's it. It's one of those personal stories that is that has resonated way beyond you know the particular experience in terms of the response I've gotten. It's called Not Captain Material. I'll read it to you. It was a lock, they told me. The team would meet for its annual postseason banquet. We'd eat some pizza. Our coach would hand out a few awards, and then we'd elect next year's captains. I say captains plural. My sophomore year, there had been three. My junior year, two. When I showed up at, at boarding school, I had never played water polo in earnest before. So out I went, kicking off three seasons of intense play. I wasn't going to make any All-American lists, but I more than held my own. By the end of that first year, I was starting on varsity, which felt like a big deal. The next fall, I was one of only two juniors who started in every game. The other junior was my good friend, Miles. Well, when captain elections came up, this means there were really only two guys in the running. Unfortunately, there had never been less than two captains, so all that remained was to plan my acceptance speech. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. You can guess what happened next. The coach tallied the anonymous vote and announced that there would only be one captain next season, and Miles had been chosen. What? I was dumbfounded, but it was no prank. Miles looked almost as shocked as I. As the room emptied, everyone avoided eye contact with me, coach included. Oh. I can still feel a knot form in my belly. And the stakes may seem relatively minor, but at the time, the verdict cut to the core of my 17-year-old self. There was no way to interpret this rejection other than as a public confirmation of every doubt I'd ever harbored about myself. You are no leader, my peers had told me. You do not have what it takes, and we will go out of our way to let you know that. It was crushing. To this day, I have no idea what happened or why. The coach called me that evening, but offered no explanation. He just wanted me to know that he could tell I was upset, but hoped I would still get in the water next season. I mean, I can't believe he did that. Um, (laughs) This is me. The season after I graduated, there would be two team captains again, and to my knowledge, there have been two captains every year since. How, do you check every year? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, you want to know what the truth is? I went back like 15 years later and I went to the pool. I wanted to show uh, my Kate where, you know, they had the names of the swim captains up. Um, and because I was a captain of the swim team. And so my name was there. I really existed, you know. And uh, then you look at the water polo had also had its t- team captain's name. And every year had two or three captains except for 1997, which was just... Oh. Miles oh Rainier. That's brutal, dude. That's so brutal. Something about me I can only assume was so noticeably not captain material that tradition had to be suspended. And then it's, you see, this is all in the service of talking about God. While I had grown up in the church, my relationship with God at the time was complicated. I was 17 years old. I believed in God. I even believed he loved me, but I did not turn to God in my shame. I turned against him. It wasn't because I thought I had let him down somehow or that God was punishing me. It wasn't even because I had some false notion about God only loving winners. I knew he was there and I resented him. I got mad at myself for being so uncaptain like and at God for making me that way. Why couldn't I be more like Miles? Maybe in the back of my mind, I knew that God tended not to work through the kind of personal glory a high school senior craved, but my emotional hurt superseded any of that. You'll note that I haven't mentioned Jesus. For whatever reason, I was scared of Jesus in high school. God felt safer. 
There were less immediate connotations, political or otherwise, when it came to God, more room to maneuver. Jesus, on the other hand, was a lightning rod, not just among my peers. Committing to him felt infinitely more specific and potentially demanding. And yet, I found that God without Jesus didn't have much to say to me in my rejection and anger. But my conception of God without Jesus was basically a larger, more powerful version of me, or my father, Mm. or worse, an authority figure like my water polo coach. But the God revealed in Jesus challenges and even contradicts our expectations of who God should be. We want status. We want favor. We want to impress, to lead. Yet Jesus was not driven by ego. He was not consumed by what Brene Brown calls the shame-based fear of being ordinary or what I might call the shame-based fear of not being captain. I wish I had known then that God is not just like us, but bigger, whether that be the worst parts of us or the best. I wish I grasped the good news of the gospel because it is only a God unlike us, a God unbound by fear or the need for approval who can save us from ourselves. Then I close by telling the, the, the reader who's supposed to be a high school kid, God is not who you want him to be, and that's okay. It's more than okay. He does not play by your rules. The voices that echo through the halls of every high school and sometimes in our own heads are different from the voice of God. His approval of you is not subject to any vote or public opinion. It is only dependent on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know it's a long story, but it, and uh, I don't want you to give me a hug here, uh, but I do want to hear what... Uh, what or you can you can give me a hug i'll take a hug <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty brutal it's pretty brutal it really what is miles doing today i i, I was emailing with him yesterday about it and uh-huh. he was he hasn't um just is he an investment banker miles is a public defender in uh louisiana uh, he's like okay awesome a, okay. Go, miles. Yes. he's a great guy he's obviously a captain and uh, oh captain my <laughs> captain <laughs> I mean, I, I have a couple of different thoughts, I, you know, because, and Dave, you, you do this as well. We work with young people kind of on the precipice, right? Like they've just left this kind of high school uh, ad- adult, sort of what the adults are saying carries a lot of weight and um, it, it matters. And I think one thing I have learned, and it has been a gift to me to get this early in motherhood is, is just how much this matters and how much these moments actually do shape people that age. Um, I think before I worked with college students, I might've written it off more frankly. And, um, they do, they shape us Mm. in, in really, really direct ways. Um, and (laughs) there's nothing that shapes you more than rejection. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think about that. The the other thing I think about, though, is I love the way you talk about your spirituality mm. because um, one thing people often voice to me when they find out that I work with college students, people who, uh, you know, are old enough to have kids headed in that direction or who are in college is like, well, I just hope that they go to church. You know, the idea being like, right, strength to strength, they went to church every Sunday and, you know, when they were home and now they're going to college and they're going to church. Mm. And what I, you know, think and don't say is like, I hope they don't for a little while. Like, I actually hope that they come here and they, they, they rediscover it for themselves. Cause I, honestly, I think that's the only way it actually has any lasting power. Yeah. Um, that, 
then they're able to reflect back on experiences when they see that God was so present to them or experiences they have in college. I mean, I think that it's a really, I mean, I say to my kids all the time, you almost have to reconvert in college, yeah. you know, like, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, it's just, I, I love the vulnerability of this. Um, Especially from a guy, Dave, because you guys usually don't talk about yourselves in this way, right? Well, I did all of a sudden see from hear from a bunch of chote swimmers. Everyone's like, "Yeah, that was really screwed up when that happened." <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, maybe maybe the true story will come out, and it'll be one of these things like the self awareness stuff, where I just something else was going on entirely that I didn't know. I mean, it, yeah, but no, no, no one has told me, and I feel like I don't understand how you could experience that without. Uh, that experience without taking it as a massive rejection. My mom says, you know, they were far away during this period. She's like, I went ballistic. She said, I all of a sudden understood substitutionary atonement because I wanted to go there and suffer it for you. (laughs) I was like, thanks mom. But what about RJ? What about the difference between God and Jesus? Do you, I mean, do you ever run into that? Oh, I believe in God. I'm not so sure about Jesus. Is that ever something? Or what else does this bring up for you? Uh, I, I feel maybe I feel like it's maybe flipped a little bit. I feel like there's been so, for a certain, maybe just the people I'm interacting with, they actually really want to talk about Jesus. There, I mean, I had someone literally just in my office yesterday who's been coming to church for decades, decades, and and she said, um, well, she she said it's true. She said, you know, RJ, since like you and this associate I hired got here. I feel like I've, I always came to church and I was faithful and I suffered through, but now I just understand what it is I actually believe and why it's good. And it's given a whole new sense of, of basis and solidity because we're talking more about Jesus. We're talking more about the Bible. It's more historically located. It's more personal. Um, and I, I just, I feel like people are actually interested in Jesus, but I also know what you mean. I felt the same way, like sort of high school, college, like Jesus was almost like a dirty word. It's like, you know, talk about God, but don't talk I mean, about it's Jesus. Certainly That's a little in our too... tradition, in the Episcopal Church, it was always like, oh. no one talked about Jesus, everyone talked about yeah. God. And maybe that has flipped. I think that you're, I, I think I see a little bit I of mean, that. Okay, 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 calm down. <laughs> I is... think it's flipped in RJ's church. I mean, like, I'm just like, I don't know that we're gonna, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, maybe, but let's I, not, I, let's I not definitely... any of you in any have any of you in any context recently had anyone be like could you talk about Jesus a little bit less please no no never no no I mean I think it depends how you talk about yeah. Jesus you know and yes. how you present Jesus yes. you know Sarah as you were talking about working with college kids and realizing the woundedness or, or just the, the effect that things they experience in their childhood has on them and re- reminds me of the gospel for this Sunday. You know, if any of you causes one of these little ones to go astray, yeah. it'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the ocean, you know, <laughs> yeah. which you is a that, terrifying coach? thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You got that? Coach, coach um, Curry, yeah, I'm coming for you. Ooh. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll name, name, I'll name some names. It was, it's name public records. Names. My um, name's not on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> There for all to um, see. I mean, can we have an episode where we just call out all the teachers <laughs> who remain to us? Like, I'm here for that. Revenge. Miss Morgan, no. who still corrects me on social media. This is a what Mockingcast is secretly all about revenge, not not. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, RJ. Well, I but, but uh, Dave, I will. I will also say right because we. I've um, I've suffered my fair share of uh, um, you know, incomprehensible at least to me humiliation. Let's put it that way. Um, and I don't know, did I doubt God's love for me? No, I didn't. 
was I still kind of pissed? Like, yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, I think what you say, you know, Jesus' priorities are not our priorities. And sometimes that feels really good. And sometimes it means letting go of things to which we think we're entitled, you yeah. know, and that sucks. Like yeah. that's really painful mm-hmm. to be like, Hey, things are going really good. And I guess you're taking me in a different direction. And I really wish you wouldn't. You know, um, I, I really I wish... I remember uh, Dorothy anyway. Martin, my my therapist, back, back way back when, I was complaining about this. I forget if I've shared this before, but I was saying I wasn't getting credit for something, or and it was in ministry, and she said, you know, David, I think you, you, your, your gifts might be the sort that, that wouldn't benefit from the spotlight. <laughs> and I was like, well, then, thanks a lot, I guess. Um, that's a nice way to construe it, like just you stay behind the scenes. So, so, so then all of a sudden I was like, why don't I start a national organization? That'd be fun. Yeah, and write books, and yeah, I'll show you. No, but what we do when we talk about, you know, the funny thing is, is when I was asked to write that essay, I hadn't thought about that experience in in quite a long time. Um, In fact, and uh, it it kind of came to me. But talk about self awareness, like that was a pretty massive rejection. The next time I experienced what I felt was sort of a massive rejection, it 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 was a reconversion for me. It was later, but it was still my, my. I still work with students basically this age who are sort of struggling with a lot of the same things. And it could be, that's the why. It could be the why of anything uh, that's happening right now um, is relates to the capricious nature of a bunch of 17-year-old uh, jerks and, uh, and a, a coach who didn't have any backbone or something. I, I, I don't know. It may be something completely different than that. Um, maybe that's the humility to, to, to look at it in the longer term and be like, uh, I can at least now, um, I can I can empathize or with with those who've who've suffered this kind of public rejection because when you're 17, it cuts so deep when you're when you're 17 you just feel things on a deeper oh, level. It's, you know? No, it's the yeah. I mean, I I did musical theater and got a really big part my freshman year, and then the next year we got braces and they had to pull a tooth, and I had like. <laughs> A lot of space, and then you, you are you, you're Celine Dion, pretty much. You're I Celine mean, Dion, and the theater teacher, uh, who was not nice, and she's dead. R.I.P. Um, would not let me like have. I couldn't have any prominent part in front of people, and I still remember what that felt like, and I still remember being embarrassed around my peers. Like, well, but I was, you know, hot shit last year, and I'm not, and yeah, it's. It's, um, I, I do think, I mean, I, and I say this with a lot of compassion, especially for teachers. Cause I know like they're trying to do their job, yeah. but it is striking how much you remember what that felt like. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it just stays with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's a way, I mean, it's certainly a way to, when I talk about it, deepening my faith in terms of God who was rejected, uh, yeah. we looked at the cross, we see that we rejected love when it came our way. And, and then you see, I mean, it, I, I, it's a little cutesy when I write it, but it is true that, uh, Jesus appointed Peter captain <laughs> and he didn't, he was the, the, he was not captain material from everything yeah. that I've seen. I find that to be profoundly hopeful that God doesn't operate according <laughs> to the same rules. I mean, right. I don't know where people need to hear that today. Uh, RJ, uh, maybe you need right. to hear it. Exactly. Look at us. (laughs) Look at us. 
Or any of us captain material. Right, yeah. Any any closing yeah. thoughts from you, Rutger? What are you going to preach on this weekend? You got uh, when you when you say the millstones. What are you going to What are you going to do? I think the theme of my sermon is going to be that that sin does actually it matters. Mm. You know, it it does matter, and we try to um, explain it away or minimize it, except for the sin that was perpetrated against us. Then we do not want to minimize it or explain yes, it away. We love to talk about that. We love to talk about that. But the sin that we commit, we sort of want to say it doesn't really matter that much, but it does. It does actually matter. To Jesus, because then he goes on to talk about cutting off hands and feet and plugging out eyes, but that it 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 matters so much, it matters enough that of course he was the one who, you know, had the millstone of our sin hung around his neck that dragged him down to hell, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't just his hand or his foot; it was his whole body that was that was cut off, and and so um, something like that's going to go, go kind of heavy. You you just talked about Jesus taking the millstone. I think I, it was so touched me when my mom wrote that in. She said, you know, I would have done anything yeah. I could to oh. go up and suffer that for you, and uh, here we are. Uh, and you I survived. think I'll go take a nap now, but. Um, that's right. And you've been trying to prove him wrong for 30 yeah, years. Yeah. So. <laughs> See me now, coach. Yeah. That chip on your shoulder, you and Tom Brady. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you both. Careful bye. with those millstones, bye. you two. Careful with those millstones. All right. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>